Welcome again to HarmonaCast. I am thrilled to be here. Why? Well, partly because of who we're interviewing this week. Longtime hero of mine, Phil Alvin. But also, I'm here to say we are 44% funded with the Kickstarter campaign for Get My Ass to Nashville. So I want to give shout-outs to Susan Burkus, Bob Ness, Tom Appel, Matt Forsey, Kevin Burroughs, a.k.a. the mayor of Bucktown, John, who didn't leave his last name, Laura Merrick, Claudia Urbano, Tim Tyson, Ellen McClure. I can't thank you guys enough for your support on this. So here's what it's all about. I have confirmed interviews with Buddy Green, Charlie McCoy, and Jelly Roll Johnson, who all live in Nashville. The best way to do interviews is to meet these people in person, not to Skype. So I want to get to Nashville in November to do it. But I can only do it if you help me get there. I do this show on a regular basis. I handle all the production costs, equipment costs, the time in researching, recording, booking the guests, post-production, promotion. All of that is done by me, and I do love it. But in order to get this premium content... I need your support, and actually, this is the only way you can get to hear these interviews. So I'm not offering these three interviews on the usual way. So if you want to hear Charlie McCoy, Buddy Green, and Jelly Roll Johnson on these three upcoming episodes in November and December, this is how you can listen to them. So it's exclusive premium content. I'm asking for $10. For 25 though, you do get the Harmonicast coffee mug, so I've sweetened the pot a little bit, but... More than anything, I just want to say how thrilled I am that I've gotten almost to 50% support after just one week. So thanks again to everybody. All right, we're going to get to this week's conversation. And there he is playing harmonica with his brother Dave from their latest album, Lost Time. It's Phil Alvin. I know his brother. I've actually had the great pleasure of playing once with Dave Alvin when he was in Chicago and he was doing an acoustic show at City Winery Chicago. And my old band, the Black Willoughbys, had opened for him earlier that year. And turns out he needed someone to join him on stage that night. So Dave was kind enough to ask me to play with him. That was in 2012. And of course, if you love Dave, you love Phil. They were in the Blasters together in the late 70s. And Phil's a mathematician. He's made a lot of great solo records on his own. Plus the two duo records that he did with Dave in 2014 and 2015. That's the duo records so far. Actually, Phil tells us a little bit about what they might have coming up next. Now, those of you who follow Dave and Phil's career, you know that Phil had a brush with death about three, four years ago. I think he actually was clinically or legally dead. He was in the hospital in Spain. He had this episode, and he has since come back, sounding as great as ever. But I wanted to ask him about that, but I had also read some interviews where he said he's tired of talking about it. So I figured, why ask him about something he's tired of talking about? So if you're curious about that, you can find pretty much all you really need to know with Phil's brush with death and several articles which in, and interviews and stuff that are published online. But Phil has a lot of great stories, and we will get to those. And we started the conversation talking about someone that Phil took harmonica lessons with when he was just barely a teenager, the great Sonny Terry. Yeah, he was, he was great to, to have done that. I, I tracked him down and went to the ash grove. My mom drove me. I walked in and first guy I talked to was Big Joe Williams, the guitar player. Yeah. Nine string guitar player. And uh, 
He said, sure, I'll introduce you to Sonny. And, and he took me back and uh, I asked Sonny, you know, why? First, I told him, you know, he was the greatest and all that. And then, then I asked him, you know, would you give me lessons? And he said, sure, $10 a lesson. What year was this? God, uh, 1966, 67. So not a small amount of money, you know, adjusting for no, inflation and all that. But, yeah. But still, you're learning from one of the masters. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. He, he, he taught me poor boy, and then, and then uh, you know, I went to him about four times. And, and what, were you a teenager then? Yeah, I was, I was like 13. 14. And did you learn the whooping stuff or what any specific techniques he taught you or was it just a general kind of blues feel? Well, it, it was a general blues feel, but I I I did a little whooping with him, yeah. The uh you know, the guy was so was was he was he was he was a good teacher and uh uh Yeah, I used to I used to I used to to, to whoop and holler the blues. I haven't done that in years, but uh... but that voice of yours to me, I I always say it's like a tree. It gets mightier with age because we could listen to your latest record and we could listen to your first record, and your voice is, if anything, stronger. I think. And when did it? When did the voice make itself known to you and everybody? Oh well, that that happened pretty early when I was like in second grade or really? first, or actually in first grade. Yeah, we were singing uh, for the principal of the school some song that the first grade teacher had taught us. And the so as we were singing, the principal, who was also the choir uh, leader, started walking across the desks. And she got to me, and she grabbed me by my arm. And took me out of the class, and I, I, I didn't say anything. I thought, what? You thought you were in trouble, maybe? Uh, yeah, I thought I was in trouble. And she, she took me off the campus and walked me across the street, knocked on the door, and there was a, a woman there. Uh, Hello, sister. And Sister Mary Anthony pulled my arm in, and I pulled in, and the woman sat down at a piano and started singing. Sing this, bim bim bozo bim bim bozo bim bim bozo bim, and so I was the head at that time. I was a descant, but uh, <laughs> but I I was in choir all through eight years at Our Lady of Perpetual Help School, Downey, California. Downey, California. Where you grew up, yeah. So I kind of had to try to make it cool to sing. Uh, and was it singing? You know. Obviously, wasn't singing in a blues. No, it was singing style. Latin. Yeah, it was so the old church stuff. Yeah, and uh, which was cool, you know. And I, I, I still remember that. And I, I got into the to the blues. Uh, probably in fifth and sixth grade, I had a. Well, I had a cousin Donna, who, who very influential on David and I. She was a rock and roll queen, uh, wild child from the 50s, and she was our favorite cousin. And 
I used to imitate Elvis and Big Joe Turner, and uh, although I didn't know that was blues at the time, it was rock and roll. Yeah. And, uh, but I had a cousin Mike who was into the folk scene in the early '60s, Mike Keller, and he's the one that introduced me to Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and and. Uh, so by about sixth grade, that's when I was I was really playing. My dad taught me how to play harmonica originally. So you grew up in a musical kind of a household. Yeah, and yeah, obviously other dad, musical influences. My father was a was a violinist and a an organ player who had, uh, you know, always kept up and uh, playing music. But this whole idea of, of the blues sort of mentorship and, and older musicians, you found a lot of guys who were older and established, and you were probably enthusiastic, I imagine. You were young. And they, oh, yeah. it seems like they really, they really, you know, kind of passed on tradition and stuff. They yeah, they did. You. Yeah. You know, Joe Turner and T-Bone Walker uh, were, were very influential uh, to, to us, uh, to me and, you know, I... We used to be Joe Turner's backup band and T-Ball Walker's backup band, yeah. and uh, and then and Lee Allen. I started playing with Lee Allen when I was like sixteen, fifteen, or sixteen. I don't think I could. Yeah, sixteen. I could just drive, and uh, and he was probably a big hero for you at the time. At the time I met Lee Allen, I didn't know who he was. Oh no. <laughs> I you know yeah. he, he was a he was a saxophone player, but he was a great saxophone player. But uh, as soon as I met him, you know, uh, we learned who he was, and uh, again we were we were sixteen. That was John Baz was there, the guy who plays bass in the Blasters, and and went into the York Club, and they let us in. You know, it, there was no trouble. <laughs> Things were a little looser back then. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was pretty funny, I think, for them to see four little white kids coming into the club. And Joe Turner was on stage singing with a, you know, pretty much a full full band. Uh, uh, Johnny Fair on guitar, a guy named Snow on drums, Lee Allen was playing saxophone. A guy named Big Jim Wynn was playing a baritone saxophone, and, and Joe was singing and and sang two songs, and then came off stage. and Mary Franklin said, "Joe, this was the boys I was telling you about." And he says, "I'll, I'll be right back. I forgot my microphone." He'd been up there singing without a microphone. It was he was remarkable, and uh, and then we had the nerve. I I went up and sang "We Baby Blues." in front of him and and he got a kick out of it and two weeks later we had a gig opening for black oak arkansas in norwalk california and about an hour before the gig a white cadillac pulls up and lee allen joe turner was driven by a guy hoppy hopkins lightning hopkins cousin and mary franklin got out and Joe came up on stage and sang with us, and and Lee played with us the whole time, and that that's when we started playing with Lee Allen regularly, and that's when 
I met Gene Taylor, the piano player, uh, who at the time we had an organ player and Joe was up on stage singing. I kept hearing this boogie woogie piano. I got there, I'm just, you know, I'm just dreaming that. After the show, Gene Taylor comes up to me and says, I hope you didn't mind that I was playing the piano during the show. And <laughs> no, that was you. And I took him backstage and he played the played Boogie Woogie and and uh we quickly got him in the band and and that's when we started backing up Joe all the time too. And, you know, singing next to Joe Turner was was inspirational as as well as uh cavity shaking, you know. He he had such a huge voice, it was great. He was he was the best. Was there something about your, your attitude in approaching these guys that they, they took you under their wing the way they did? I was pretty precocious, I think. Uh, uh, and uh, at the time, I was, I, was, I, I was pretty well organized. Joe Turner used to call me the charger. He said, send the charger in. And I'd go in and talk everybody into getting us gigs and things like that. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure why they, they, maybe my persistence, uh, the, the connection, Mary Franklin, the woman who was our manager was, was, uh, really big in the community and, and, you know, she probably had something to do with it as well. But, you know, I guess at the time my personality was, was, was good for that. And as, as big as your voice. Yeah, I was as big as my voice. <laughs> and were you playing harmonica on, on a lot of the tunes then? You know, some, the Blasters has harmonica on not every tune, but some of them. How much was harmonica happening back in those early days? Yeah, it, I, I was playing a lot more harmonica then. Uh, I didn't play any guitar in the bands. I actually had learned guitar to try to teach guitar players how to play like Brownie McGee stuff and things so I could play like Sonny Terry stuff. Uh, but yeah, mostly mostly I, I played harmonica. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then I quit playing... I graduated from high school early and and uh, was supposed to go to Berkeley and I I didn't I Berkeley in California yeah not Berkeley, Berkeley School of Music no yeah. not Berkeley School of Music no you would have done great there too I don't know I I, I was going to be a paleontologist at the time but uh, we we were playing with so many people uh, that I I. I didn't go to school, and which really pissed my father off. Uh, we were supposed to go to Africa with Willie Dixon and Margie Evans, and and that fell through. And so by the time that I was eighteen or nineteen, uh, you know, we were just driving up and down the coast, playing music where, wherever we could, and and but making money at it. Making some money, some money, you know, living in a car and and uh, uh, 
I'm learning how to play Hank Williams songs and, uh, you know, always played Jerry Lee songs. And, you know, sort of found the core of what would work in any bar from a, from a black bar to a hillbilly or country bar. And uh, just before I turned 21, I, I had some epiphany and uh, quit playing music and uh, uh, went back to, went to school, went to Cerritos College and found out that it was mathematics that I really loved. And How far did you get with that? I, I got a master's degree uh, in math from a thesis it was it was more than a master's degree but uh and then i went to ucla to 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 get a phd i i wrote this i wrote a thesis that was pretty advanced and uh i sent it to a one of the great set theorists who's now passed away a guy named john barwise and, and he called me and February of 1993, because the math that I was doing, people didn't accept it, and there was no reason for them not to. But they. But you were way out ahead. You were in your own. I was in my own place. I don't know that I was. I was out ahead, but I was doing a set theory in a in a in a different way than most people were doing it, and that they they didn't like. And what is set theory? Someone explained it to me as it's kind of the the nuts and bolts of mathematics. Is that an accurate yeah, definition? Yeah, that, that's that's an accurate. Uh, you can build up all of mathematics from set theory. It's and it's it's difficult to do it any other way. It it's the you know it's the the notion of of collections. You told also told me once that how you use your mind to do music and to do set theory is all one thing to you. All yeah, well, it, it used to be. I used to uh, the the thing I used to love the most was to go out on stage and blow out all of my emotions, and then hurry back to the hotel room and and write math. That 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 was uh, that was what I loved to do. So you're one of those guys who loves math, and you're good at it. Yeah. And uh, were you going to quit music and just do math? Yes, I, I I I never really thought of music as a career. I I just I just played it, and I you know I I didn't plan anything. And I uh, when I got my my BS, uh, I taught for a year uh, as a TA, and then. And I was like twenty five, I think, and uh, and then I started doing some gigs at a a local bar, and that's sort of how the 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 blasters came about. Was I was I was playing at this place and. Gene Taylor was the the regular at this place called the Sundance Saloon, and then he went to Canada, and I uh, started playing there regularly for him. And then Bill Bateman came down and started playing drums, and, and then 
some people that were getting married asked us to put a band together and uh and that's and david was playing playing guitar at the time but just just really really learning it and i couldn't find the guy that regularly played guitar with us so i had david come down and and we played this wedding and and it was pretty good you know and 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 they convinced me i remember david and his girlfriend and my girlfriend at the time convincing me you know let's let's you know you should you should make a band and and uh and we did and david was always a good songwriter so i knew that we could get good songs out of him and uh by the time that i was 26 i think we had found rock and ronnie and made the rolling rock record and and uh, the rest is history that was the first blasters record yeah but did you and dave you must have played other professional situations before that or was that the first one for you and your brother yeah that was uh you know he 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 had had david played flute and i would have him come and play flute sometimes uh but I'm trying he, to picture that it doesn't quite match up with the dave i've met oh well being a flute player yeah well he i'm was, sure he was great at it oh he was he yeah. was he was very good i remember one time we went to a uh a, a local small jazz festival where louis jordan was playing and and uh i took david with us he took the flute and and I was always worried about it because he was two years younger than me, and I was I was eighteen, so Dave was like fifteen and a half or sixteen, and I I couldn't find him, and so I went looking through all these different rooms, and and he was in a room with Louis Jordan's piano player, and he was playing the flute with him. I I remember crying when I saw it because it, it was so good. But then the blasters got pretty well-known pretty big pretty fast after that right i mean it was a national act you guys went on tour and played all over from there right yeah pretty quick well we put that rolling rock record out and then marie marie became a hit and uh for a guy named shaken stevens over in england and that brought us to some attention but really it was when we started playing with x and uh you know, we were playing a lot of the punk clubs before that. We were playing the Cuckoo's Nest in Orange County. And uh, and we played so hard and, and, and played, you know, the blaster songs. And even before we were playing many blaster songs, we were just doing covers. But we played it so hard that that went off well at the at the punk shows and so that was that was a uh that was a great time it was i i you know if it wouldn't have been punk i i don't know if the energy would have been yeah. as high and that's the word that i think of because i've seen you and your brother many many times and there's always an energy even if you're doing an acoustic show is that something you learned from 
the guys who took you under their wing when you were younger to, to really, you know, just kind of go for it? Uh, yeah, well, you know, Joe was always hard hitting and, uh, T-Bone, T-Bone was, was hard hitting. He always played loud and, and, uh, uh, Lee Allen was certainly uh, a hard hitting guy. Uh, but the, the, the energy we played with, it was sort of out of fear, you know, out of, you were playing with guys that were, you know, throwing glasses and bottles and, it's a rough and, crowd. Yeah, to, to the 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 punk crowd, and uh, so it it souped it up a, a little bit, but but it wasn't anything that that Lee Allen didn't know about, or and and you know and Joe. I remember. I remember. I was playing with T-Bone Walker at a place called the Parisian Room in Los Angeles. And it was when Freddie King had that hit. I'm going down, down, down. Freddie King was big as, as he was big. You know, Freddie King was a very tall guy, like six, seven, and huge chested. And, and T-Bone would play once a year, like a two week, uh, residency at the Parisian room and so one night we're playing and Freddie King walks in and so T-Bone invites him up on stage and uh, the guy that was playing with me Gary Massey gave uh, Freddie King his guitar because Freddie King didn't have his guitar and T-Bone and Freddie had a, a guitar battle and and T-Bone sort of won, you know, uh, and it, and Freddie King wasn't happy. And so the, the next week, Freddie King came back with, you know, passionate pink jumpsuit with passionate pink, uh, high heel shoes on. So that he couldn't even stand on the stage. He had to stand off the stage. And he had his guitar and he had two girls on his arms. And he was gunning for T-Bone. T-Bone was known as the cut master. And Freddie King, T-Bone calls Freddie King up. And Freddie King goes up and plays 10 of the most hellacious, agile guitar choruses that you could hear. And then he turns to T-Bone and says that, just looks at him. And T-Bone looked over at Freddie, he looked at the audience, and he took his guitar off of him. And he set it down backwards against the amplifier and started to walk away. And as he walked away, his arm, just his left arm, one hand, stayed on the guitar, and he, he couldn't pull it away. And so he picked it up and turned it toward himself, and and he just played one lick, da 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 with one hand. And he'd look at the guitar, and he'd look at the audience, and look at Freddie, and da 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 He did that for two choruses, and he blew Freddie away. And I remember asking T-Bone after that, I said, man, how do you, how do you 
how did you do that? You know, what, what? And T-Bone said, uh, he says, he says, it's easy. He says, when, when somebody comes out and leaves it just ripping, you come in and play it cool. And if they play it cool, you come in ripping. And, uh, that, that, it always stuck with me. I remember the, the, the blasters used to, used to pretty much come in ripping all the time, but that would always stick in my mind, uh, that time that I saw T-Bone blow Freddie King away with one hand. You don't see too many, I mean, back to harmonica, you don't see that many of those cutting kind of things anymore with harmonica. I, oh, they I know got, they've ha they happen. But. Yeah, they, they happen out on the... Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I, I even go for that. The harmonica seems to be such an abused instrument nowadays. <laughs> it, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. By many. It, 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 it's when it's played, it's played too much, and and uh, you know, it's it, it's a beautiful instrument, and. Uh, but you always play it very tastefully, and it, it to me, it's an extension of your voice. You know, it's big, um, and you just always seem to have the right stuff you know the right amount you know just like you're spicing a recipe well that's uh, with the know? blasters that's 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 what i did I, I i i i don't i didn't like abusing the harmonica i liked to play it just just in a few places and and uh i think i did that pretty successfully in the blasters yeah so long, baby. Goodbye to the riff or that. Da, 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 oh, that da, was David's da. riff. That's Dave's, and then you, you. Yeah, Lee Allen and I doubled it. Yeah, or, or put it out. But that was a cool sound, you know, harmonica and tenor sax together. When that happened, there's not too many people that do that. No, that and, and it, it was a cool sound. Yeah. It, it was a it was a beautiful thing. And then you had the new record, of course, Lost Time. How did you go about choosing all these tunes? I get the feeling, especially with the latest record, it's like a, a trip through your album collection, your record collection, and Dave's record collection, because you have Oscar Brown Jr., Big Joe Turner, of course. You got James Brown, Willie Dixon, Thomas A. Reverend Thomas A. Dorsey. I mean, you've got such a wide swath. Yeah, well, that, that it, it is. It's a, it was our record collection and uh, and songs that we we loved as as kids, you know. The, the Golden Gate Quartet song was uh, on the flip side of a Tampa Red 78. And, you know, we bought it for the Tampa Red 78 and we turned it over and there was this Jubilee singing and that was so magnificent. And, and I became a big fan of the Golden Gate Quartet. Uh, and I. I remember noticing that Elvis Presley sang a lot like the like the lead singer of the Golden Gate Quartet. I wish I knew his name and I don't. Uh, and uh, I remember I remember saying that, telling David, I said, "Man, you know, I think Elvis listened to this Golden Gate Quartet." And later we found out when we went to to Nashville. 
to record Troublebound, and the Jordanaires were there. They came in, they had a Golden Gate Quartet record under their arm. You know? Really? Yeah, and apparently that's why Elvis had the Gold LeMay suit made, because the Golden Gate Quartet used to play yeah. in Gold LeMay suits. And... But he was a big gospel person. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Was the hard part for this record in choosing just what songs not to record? Because you can only get so many on a record, and you have big record collections. Yeah, well, you know, the, the instrumentation has has something to do with it uh as as david would say if we if we did lightning hopkins uh stuff we you know we did the big bill brunzi record and and big bill's music affords itself many uh, possible interpretations and that's good the reverend thomas a dorsey song it's just a song that 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 i'd always played and and that we we loved very much the Oscar Brown Jr. song came as a surprise to me, even though it was a song that I, I liked, and I, you know, I, I used to go see Oscar Brown Jr. and, and you know, we met him in in Chicago, and and I, I, I loved his songs, and uh, I knew a lot of them. I remember the there was a song called Hazel's Hip. I play a little piano and organ myself, and and I asked. Oscar Brown Jr., you know, why do you do Hazel's Hips? And it's a piano player, organ player named Baby Duke Castor that was playing with him. And uh, he said, well, show it to Baby Duke Castor. So, you know, I showed it to him and he, and he did it. And that was, he, he was great. You know, we, we did a Chicago blues version of what was a jazz song. You know the song. Yeah, Mr. Kitt. Yeah. Permit me to introduce myself. The name is Mr. Kicks. I dwell in the dark dominion, way down by the river Styx. The devil has set me here because I'm full of wicked tricks. And I'm such a popular... And so the first record duo record with Dave got a Grammy nomination yeah the next one could it get a Grammy nomination or did it miss it with last no, it year didn't get one. it didn't get yeah. one but it should have we all know that so will you guys do another one yeah I think we're planning to do maybe a, an EP and and then a another LP or you know uh, another CD whatever you call it another collection record. Collection, <laughs> collection yeah. of recordings. What I love about them is it's kind of, you get kind of the best of all the worlds. You get Dave singing and playing guitar and you singing and harmonica and everything else and these great tunes. And I mean, I love the Blasters, but it's great to have both you and Dave singing. Dave didn't sing yeah. when he was with the Blasters. So especially your live shows too, you kind of get, you get yeah, an all around thing. You know, yeah. He wouldn't, he didn't, he, until he left the Blasters, he, he, he wouldn't sing. He didn't have, he wouldn't even talk to, he didn't even want to talk to the reporters when we first started the Blasters. He was very shy. Uh, uh, but that's all changed. Yes, it has. Now, any idea what might show up on these recordings that have yet to be made? Well, there's an EP that we're trying to get made that's sort of uh, songs called, maybe called Songs Our Father Taught Us which is uh, a lot of union songs and, and uh, uh, 
songs my dad used to sing, oh, the, cool. the Sad and Tone Rose. And, and then the, the next record, I think, is going to be mostly Dave Originals. Oh, great. What song of yours or recording maybe of yours or your and your, yours and your brother's should we close out with? That is your choice. Maybe the song Highway 61, if you know that. It's a uh, Sunnyland Slim song. All right, the incredible singer, storyteller, set theorist, and, of course, harmonica player. Phil Alvin joining us on Harmonicast. That version of Highway 61's off the Blasters' first album. So you can get all that Blasters stuff now. Thankfully, it's been re-released. And, of course, Dave and Phil's latest duo records. One thing I wanted to ask Phil about was the album he made in the mid-'80s, Unsung Stories, that he did with Sun Ra and the orchestra backing him up. Didn't have time to talk about that, but maybe next time for Phil. And we'll see you next time on Harmonicast. It's Bob Kessler. Thanks again to everybody who's contributed to Get My Ass to Nashville. You can go to my website, bobkesslerharmonica.com, if you would like to contribute. Join me again for the next episode when we talk to another fine harmonica player. This is Bob Kessler, and this is Harmonicast.